0: For a morning lesson this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm number 41. Psalm number 41. This Psalm and the one prior and the one after David is, it's believed that David penned these words during the time of Absalom's rebellion. And so we plan to continue this morning in a series that we started last well, two weeks ago, and, um, and go through the last part of, of John chapter 13. So you'll see as we read through these words here in Psalm 41, that though they were, they came to David in a time of trouble, they very much prophesy the, the coming betrayal of Judas. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth, and thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing, thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me, heal my my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Mine enemies speak evil of me, when shall he die and his name perish? And if he come to see me, he speak vanity. His heart gathereth iniquity to itself. When he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All that hate me whisper together against me. Against me me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast unto him. And now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. By this I know that thou favorest me, because mine enemy doth not triumph over me. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and settest me before thy face forever." Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and
1: amen. So let's turn our Bibles this morning to John chapter 13 and read it together. John 13. Familiar to all of us. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father... Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go ye cannot come, so now I say to you, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice.
0: Good morning.
1: We too would greet you here to services today in the name of the
0: Lord Jesus Christ. And what a great exhortation we've had already. Have you come to the well this morning? Are you thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ? That phrase that the Samaritan woman said, Brother Jesse went to a couple of times, ends with, is not this the Christ? And can we say amen this morning? Those walls of the, that create cultural boundaries, those walls that may be caused by by religious influence? How do we break those down? And I think that as we work through the message this morning, we may come to some conclusions there of what can break down those walls. We wanted to start this morning with just a a brief overview of what we've been through already. And I don't know that we intend to do this every time, but I know we've got a sparse crowd here this morning, but we had a sparse one two weeks ago too, so we just want to bring everybody to where we're at, and the size of the crowd doesn't matter. We can worship here in spirit and in truth as well. So two weeks ago, as I mentioned, as we started into the morning lesson this morning, we started a a series, and we intend to... Preach through what is known theologically as the farewell discourse, which traditionally would be John 14, 15, 16, and 17. In my mind, John chapter 13 ought to be a part of that. And so that's where we start. And I think there's many things in John 13 that kind of set the tone for the rest of that discourse. And then we intend to continue through the experience in Gethsemane and the crucifixion that we find in John 18 and 19 and go on to the resurrection in chapter 20. The one thing I think we failed to mention last week is as we go through there, our intentions at this point is to do kind of a cross analysis of all the Gospels and bring all the accounts together as we look at this passage. Now, John 13 through 17, those aren't really recorded in any of the other Gospels. But as we come into the garden and the crucifixion, and the resurrection, we would like to bring them all together, as well as bringing them together with the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ as He went through all of that, just to bring to our minds in fullness the cost of the sacrifice on our behalf. We've titled this series, A Mission Masterfully Consummated, and we explained that a little bit Two weeks ago, but we're going to do that again. Consummated is the past tense of consummate, obviously, but it means simply to bring something to a state where nothing is left to be done. The work that brought Jesus Christ into this world, the mission that He had as He came to this point and He continued on through the cross was so eternally complete. There is nothing left to be done in terms of your and my salvation. I feel like that that mission is ad- adequately described in, in Romans ten or I'm sorry Hebrews ten, verse eight and ten, it says above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law then said he lo I come to do thy will o god he taketh away the first that he may establish the second by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all so the first message in this series we started at the beginning of John chapter 13 and we titled that message the servant master and just some key points that we worked through as we started into the message, we tried to establish the, the feel or the atmosphere that was present in this upper room. I believe that there was an air of anticipation. If you remember back to Luke's account, as they come in together for the supper, um, I'm not going to be able to quote this right, but Jesus just proclaimed that the, the longing that he had to have this Passover, to partake of this Passover with his disciples. There was anticipation from a cultural standpoint. I have to think of our communions and our, 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 our conferences. We come into those and we see anticipation because of the familiarity and the memories and all that's attached to
2: that. And they came with longing. And they came with desire
0: that much follows that cultural implication. And so as we move into John 13, Jesus introduced love right at the beginning. He says, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. And the love that is described here in this chapter is in the Greek, agapeo is the word that would would describe that. And that is essentially the agape love of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father coming together with the phileo love, I think both of those terms you're probably familiar with. Phileo meaning the 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 love that I would have with a friend, the close connection. And so you bring those together and you have a, an unconditional eternal love that comes together with a love that's born out of a commonality. And I think that that commonality is the bond that we can share with all men. We love one another. We have commonality within this district, within this brotherhood, within believers across the world, because we share a salvation. But we have commonality with those that are in the world, with those that we are called to minister to, because we share a sin nature. We went on and and walked together through the first part of this chapter and did a character study of Judas and Peter We talked about the spiritual lessons that we find here in this foot-washing service of humbling ourselves to one another in order to love better. We talked about the element of cleansing in this foot-washing service, the cleansing from self-centeredness, which manifested itself in the disciples here as pride. And finally, we gave effort to tie the spiritual lesson in these words into our present practice of foot washing in our communion service. And so that brings us up to verse 18, where we intend to start this morning, and we have titled this portion, A Merciful Master. And as you think of these familiar words in the last half of John chapter 13, mercy may not be the first thing that comes to your mind. But I think as we work through this together, we will see that there is an underlying element of mercy throughout this last half of this book, of this chapter, I'm sorry. And this same underlying element of mercy carries through this final discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ and comes about full force and manifests itself as He goes to the cross. As we Dive into this chapter here, the last half of John chapter thirteen, as Stephen said as he he caught our attention to this scripture to read this morning, these are very familiar words. And I think sometimes due to familiarity passages like this that we hear time after time through the through all of our lives, sometimes we have to take the time to dig a little deeper to really see what's there. They're familiar. They're precious words, and we love them. But because of the repetition and the familiarity, we fail sometimes to see beyond the surface. So we want to start here in verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And that may have, may seem to you like, a, like an odd place to break this message right there in the middle of the words of Jesus. But I think here in, in verse 18 as I have studied through this, this is a new paragraph. This is a change in the conversation. And as I looked into these verses and I tried to digest them contextually, I realized that, that in my... Life, there has been a mistake here in my understanding. As I've read verse 18, I've always assumed that that refers back to verses that have prior been spoken. But because this is a new conversation, this first phrase, I speak not of you all, refers to going forward. And so as we look at this, I think one thing though that the um aids in, in our misconception sometimes in this verse is is I don't know whether it's it's the verbiage that the King James used, and I'm not trying to deter away from the King James, but also the punctuation. Nobody likes grammar class, but at the same time, we learn all of that, and sometimes that's that aids in our understanding. And so, if you look at that, I actually looked at several other translations that I. That I feel are are competent, and and they all all did did it similarly for this verse. But in, in this 18th verse, if you look at the ESV, it says, "I am not speaking of all of you." And in the King James, there's a colon, but it changes it to a semicolon. And maybe this is tedious for you, but it continues on. I know whom I have chosen. Period. It's the end of the sentence. And then as you continue on there. It doesn't have as big of an effect on the last part of that verse, but it says, But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And we can read those words, and it don't sound that different. But when you read it with the change in punctuation, it changes it. To where I, I think if we, we've already mentioned that first phrase. If we go to the second phrase, I know whom I have chosen. And any of this that I'm trying to bring out here does not detract from the fact of, of what you may have commonly perceived that as, but rather, I think, it, I think it lessens the meaning to not take this into consideration that in this second phrase, there, th- this, this is a past- tense phrase. He says, "I know whom I have chosen." There is a common common familiar I'm sorry, familiarity here but what this is saying is jesus knew their hearts jesus this this isn't the the familiarity of of of, i know kent pretty well and i like him and, and and we're brothers in christ but we're friends it's not that familiarity jesus knew them to the very core of their soul and spirit and not just in this setting he knew them when he called them he knew them before He called them. And the implication to that is when Jesus called them to follow Him, He knew the, account, the, the, the situations that were going to take place less than 12 hours from this very setting. So when Jesus called Judas, and I don't think any of the Gospels address that particular calling like they do some of the disciples but when Jesus knew, when Jesus called Judas to follow him, I think that he knew what the condition of Judas's heart would remain at. As I have studied the life of Judas, and, 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 and there's not a lot in Scripture. But most of the times it addresses Judas specifically, and if you were here two weeks ago, we got a little deeper into that. It's not really favorable to the point where I have to question and only the Lord knows whether Judas ever was converted. And we want to go into that a little bit more later as we talk more specifically about Judas. John continues on here as he writes the words of Jesus with the prophecy that we read in Psalms this morning. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. While this... Conversation change here is moving towards a time where Jesus will call Judas out specifically on his betrayal. We want to go ahead and read on to to verse 19, and these two verses will tie together a little bit. And here again, this is to my understanding. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. And I think that this is where we start to see mercy. If you look at what theologians have to say about this passage, they would point very consistently in these two verses that this is all about Judas. As I have studied this, I don't know that I agree with that completely. I think that it's not wrong to fit Judas into this. But I think that it's more than that. We want to to talk a little bit about 19 before we dig into that to give us some connection to what this verse is going forward. Verse 19 is what is known theologically as what has been termed an aid to faith. And there are, I believe, 11 verses throughout Scripture that have been Termed with that label, and every one of them is an account where it may be a verse that's following account, it may be prior to an account where it is specifically stated that because of this you will know that I am God, and 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 we can we can kind of shrug that off and think well we could read that and see that, but sometimes our minds have to be specifically pointed to an object so that we can grasp the understanding just like this says here that ye may believe that I am he. An example of that we're going to be very brief here is just a few pages back in John 11 and this is the account of, of, of Lazarus being risen from the dead and prior to these verses Jesus makes the comment that our friend Lazarus sleepeth and his his disciples enter into a state of confusion where They don't think that Jesus is accepting the fact that Lazarus is dead. So in in, in verse 14, Jesus says very plainly, Lazarus is dead. And He continues on and says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto Him. And then if you drop one down in that that chapter to verse 41, and I don't know how big the crowd was that gathered there at Lazarus' grave, but Jesus starts to pray. In verse 41, He says, Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me, and I knew that Thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. And this one is prior to the event. The next verse, He goes on, and he, the, the prayer is over, and He cries out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Another aid to faith. I found it interesting that all of the verses that have been termed an aid to faith in the New Testament are in the Gospel of John. And the reason I'm taking the time to call your attention to that is five out of eleven are in the passages that we intend to work through as we go through this series. Another one that we may go to at another date would be in Isaiah 43. There's one in Isaiah 41. There's a couple in Exodus. Proofs that He is God. And I think that that has bearing on what we're going through today. I'm hoping this don't seem like a rabbit trail to you because these aids to faith are yet another proof of God's mercy. God in His mercy has desired that beyond the shadow of the doubt, His people will know without doubt that He is God. And so, as we give effort to tie these two verses together, I had to think forward to some of the events that are going to transpire that I think involve every one of the twelve. Twelve. Judas' betrayal is the most obvious. But as I thought about these verses only applying to Judas, Jesus already knew Judas' end. He knew the unbelief in Judas' heart. He knew that when it finally came to where Judas saw his need for repentance, his unconverted state would cause him to believe that there was no forgiveness for him and he would hang himself. Jesus knew that. But there was another 11 there. And I want you to put yourself in their place this morning. What if you were one of them that fled? I think that that was maybe all but Peter there in the garden. As that angry mob came and they took Jesus away, they fled. Then you can put yourselves in the place of Peter. What if you were the one that denied? And I think that as we look at this that has been termed an aid to faith, this was stated in this moment for the benefit of these disciples, but it carries through to believers through the ages. But Jesus knew that there was coming a time very, very soon that these men would have to look back and and, and our and our human nature, the very nature that has been in us since Adam would cause them to question was this man that I have followed for three years surely the Christ? Because their understanding prior was that this Messiah would come and He would be a military figure. He would, he would come and He would conquer and He would, he would rescue them from the Romans. That they, they, they had seen different than that, but now all of a sudden this man that they had placed so many hopes in, not that the hopes was misplaced, but the, the execution was misguided, was now dead. I think that this was not directly related just to Judas because whether you fled, whether you denied, whether you betrayed, you lifted up your heel against him. He knew the heart of those who followed him. He knew, as we stated, there was a moment coming very soon That as their hearts started to question, they would have to look back, and this very moment would not be more than about thirty-six hours old when they got to a place where they had time to to think. Be part of maybe what was one of the first things that came to their mind, and these words in the nineteenth verse where it says, That ye may believe that I am He. I foretold this so that you might believe. I don't want you to think that because I state that Judas, Jesus already knew Judas' end, that this was any different for Him. And we'll go into this a little farther in a few verses, but I, want, I have full belief that the same terms of mercy that was extended to John and Andrew and Simon Peter and the rest of the twelve were extended to Judas. Let's continue on in verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And I just want to make one brief statement onto this. This is, I think, the reason why the the disciples needed to be able to look back and believe. Because I think that this is a soft approach on the part of Jesus to the fact that in His absence these men had to carry on. It was necessary that through the lives of these men, the gospel of salvation would go out. And this is kind of an easy entrance into this mission, per se, that He was passing on to His disciples. And so it's kind of the tail end of, of this particular phrase of conversation but just simply Jesus revelating to them, you might say, that I know that you are going to mess up. And I want you to know that repentance is available and will be available. And I want you to be able to remember that I am God and that repentance is through me. So that you can be strong. That you can carry on. Verse 21, when Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And the way that John records this verse 21 is another thing that prompts me to believe that the prior verses aren't strictly about Judas. As he leads into this, it says, When Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit. I don't want to read too much into this, but I believe that this is stated in this way because something in Jesus' countenance changed. And as you can think back to your life, times that you've been in a conversation with someone and you've had to break to them news that you didn't want to share. Someone you loved. In my mind's eye, I can just see maybe... the. Jesus gets done with this foot washing. He gets done teaching this, this lesson in humility in order to love better. He gets done with these last three verses and, and, and He's just faced with this is the time. And I have to wonder if Jesus' Jesus's coloring didn't pale a little bit. I have to wonder if His tone didn't take on a seriousness. Maybe a tremor in His voice. As I just have tried to place myself in this scenario, I can imagine that these three previous verses were taught in such a manner that Jesus had tenderness in His voice. As He spoke these verses to the disciples, you could hear the love. You could hear the compassion. But now, John says, He was troubled in spirit. And I feel like that there had to be some sort of outward change for John to be able to say with assuredness that he was troubled in spirit. And I know that there was likely more conversation than what's recorded. Maybe they just... John saw that in in the words that Jesus had to say. So again, I don't want you to feel like I'm I'm adding too much into this. This is just things that came across me as I studied through this. I think the, the, the the first three verses we've talked about today was... Not as much about foretelling an event as it was of reminding them to come back and visit this moment to know that He was God. And now we come to a place where it's very
2: direct.
0: Verily, verily, I say unto you, it's singular, that one of you shall betray me. I had to think of Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He goes on to say, and he hid as it were, I'm not going to get it right, I'm sorry. Yeah, we hid as it were our faces from him. And I think in some of the verses, that, and in the next few verses we'll talk about,
2: maybe we can see a little bit of that. I have to wonder that this troubling of spirit, this sorrow
0: emanating from this man of sor- sorrows wasn't just tangible in the room. The atmosphere in this room that was one of anticipation, it was one of longing, it was one of desire, also comes such a palpable sorrow that they could feel it. This one whom Jesus had poured so much love into. Jesus may have known the outcome, but I don't believe that he poured any less love into Judas than he poured into any of the other eleven.
2: And here he is in this upper room knowing that that one that he loved,
0: one that though he knew the outcome, he had put so much effort into trying to bring this soul to see that he was the way of salvation was still going to reject. And as we continue, we're going to go and read verse 22 to 25 next. I just want you to imagine with me the sorrowful silence that seemed to ensue as we read the description of the room in the next few verses. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it which should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? And here again, I want to give us a visual of this scene. The wording here is kind of unfamiliar to us. Culturally, we are so so different and so far removed from the Eastern culture, even now, let alone 2,000 years ago. And so we, we see the words that they were reclining in. And I don't know what picture that brings to your mind's eye, but I would acknowledge that they were probably on the floor, but my mind's eye would have always went to that maybe they were were leaned back. Maybe they had some pillows that they were leaning on. Reclining to us is comfortable. But in this culture at this time, the setting that this would be referring to, the table would have been very low, and they would have been laying on their left side, kind of at an angle. Basically, if, if this would have been the setting, Kent would have been laying on his left side and his feet would have been pointed back at an angle. And so when it refers to the disciple that, that Jesus loved and that his head was lying on his breast, it would have been about their positioning. So the one to his right would have been also at an angle. And to fit up around the table and the posture that they took, their left hand would have been on a pillow and kind of leaning on their head, their head on their hand, and their right hand would have been free for eating. And so their head would have been up close to the table. So, as, as the Lord Jesus laid like that, then the Apostle John would have been coming right up to where his head was very near Jesus' chest. And, and that description doesn't, to me, add or detract anything from this scripture, other than maybe we can see a little bit why Peter was, was, was trying to get John to. It wasn't about the relationship, it was about the proximity. But Simon Peter, ever bold, ever impetuous, said this silence, I can't take it. I need to know. And, and, and you've witnessed this in people. I know you have. How Peter started to beckon with his hands and, and try to non-verbally get John to ask this question. And I don't think that John wanted to any more than any of the rest of the disciples. You can, you can understand that silence. That palpable sorrow. That feeling that you've just heard a testimony or or a heart shared or, or, or heard a hard lesson and, and it feels like something should be said, but nobody wants to say it.
2: And finally, John said, well, okay. And he said, Lord, who is it? We continue here. And we're going to do 26
0: and 27 together. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. And here again, there is cultural implication that I think, gives clarity to what the Scriptures say. We know that these these verses have bearing on one another, but I think they also explain one another. So the cultural implication that we want to bring out in this verse 26, where Jesus says, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. I know that there is controversy as to whether this Last Supper was the P- Passover meal was not the Passover meal, we're not here to have that discussion. But I think because of the familiarity of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the practices and the specialness, I have no doubt that, that the culture itself, as time went by, probably didn't take anything away from what the Scripture outlines that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread should be but probably also added stuff in the, in the specialness of the moment. I don't mean this in, 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 in changing it, but it's just a special time. And we know, we know how we are as people with things like that. We look forward to our communion service. And the important thing is the service itself. But it's kind of become cultural that we have company on Sunday. And we enjoy that. We look forward to it. It doesn't detract from the meaning of the service. It doesn't change the service at all. But it's something that in our culture we have added. And so whether this was Passover or not, as we get, if we had went back to one of the other Gospels to look at the Lord's Supper itself, there are things in that supper that are very oriented to the Passover meal. And so as we look at this, this verse 26 and these words of Jesus regarding this sop that I have dipped. There would come a time in the Passover meal where the head of the household would rise. And he would take bread and he would dip it into a sauce type stuff that was made of fruit. And he would do this and he would hand it out to his family. And he would one, one for every person. But if there was somebody that was a guest in the home, somebody that what didn't live in the home, he would offer it to them first. And we say, well, we do that too. We would, we would pass a dish to our guests first. But for us, that may be just simply based in etiquette. For the Jews, it was it was some special attention given to this guest. This was a religious experience this was a, a, an experience that had been outlined by god and so to offer to the to the guest was very much an honor and and i say that and you say well well how does this this apply to this circumstance even though jesus statement does not leave any room for honor, uh, for for error it was very much the one whom i have Past this to is the one. I think in this setting, regard, regarding this cultural implication, this was yet again an extension of mercy on the part of Jesus to Judas. This was once again Jesus telling Judas, it's not too late. Jesus knew the outcome of this. Jesus knew what Judas' decision would be. We could go into the argument of predestination and all of that. It still comes down to choice. Jesus knows the outcome of your heart. He knows the outcome of your heart, but He still extends mercy. The same terms of mercy is extended to each and every one of us the same way they've been extended to people through all the ages. And I think that this cultural implication to this verse is just one more time that Jesus said, Judas... I love you. I honor you. I'm
2: placing you in this moment above all of these 12. There's still time.
0: But as we go on into verse 27, here again the way John records this, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. I think that to some degree this was a visible change in Judas. Now again, because of their proximity, we'll go, we're will go. we just going to leave that lay for a little bit. We'll go into that in a minute. But I think John could see, maybe put yourself in the place of Judas, and there was a flash of surprise across his face. When Jesus revealed to him, I know that you have been consorting with the Sanhedrin. I know that you have been conspiring against me. Jesus didn't say those words. He didn't have to. But in that moment, when he handed Judas that sop, you can just imagine the flash of surprise across Judas's face. And it may have been momentary. And I think just as, just as quickly, no matter how slight, no matter how controlled there was an attempt to make it, there was a countenance of evil. And I base that solely on John records it this way. If we believe the infallibility of Scripture and we take into consideration the journey that we're making from this chapter 13 to the cross, I don't think there was ever a time to discuss this. And I don't see, and here again, maybe I'm adding too much, I just don't, don't in my understanding, see the Apostle John putting this into his gospel if there wasn't something that made it so.
2: And so when Jesus said, that thou doest, do quickly. I think Jesus witnessed
0: this too. And we know that Jesus didn't need to witness it. He already knew it. But this isn't simply a go and do what you got to do. I think this is, a, this is an invitation to leave. This is an invitation to go out from this place. Because
2: Jesus knew that Satan had entered into him.
0: An invitation to depart. We want to continue on at verse 28. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast. For that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. And I know that that could be an argument to what I just said. There's some ignorance still in the room. But there again, as we've outlined that setting of how they were, and this interaction was taking place specifically from Jesus to Judas, John being right there just a head and a half width away from Jesus' face, would have had about the same line of sight. I'm not saying that this was dramatic. I'm not saying that this was was life shattering to the moment. It may have been small. But here again I think that this I mean just we, we consider all that interchange and, and we can kind of be critical of the disciples sometimes in various accounts and say, well how how could you not have known? How many times did Jesus say that he was leaving? How could you not have known? But in the moment, there may have been conversations going off at the side. There may have been listening with half an ear. Somehow, there was an ignorance in the room to to what Judas was about. And here again, as we consider the personalities around the table, I have to say that I think that this is yet another mercy extended to these 12 men. You think, we'll just, we're will just we not going to go into all of the 12, but you just think about a couple personalities. Simon the Zealot was sitting at this table. The best lingo that I can put it in for our understanding were Jewish special forces. They were trained assassins. They were based off of, I think, about one verse in Scripture that, that called them to feel that they were to go out and to conquer the injustices to the Jewish faith. Simon I believe had training to where he could have went out after Judas and he could have killed him in the shadows and nobody would have ever knew until they found the body consider Simon Peter he was bold he was brazen he was impetuous he he operated on his emotions in the moment whether he would have had the courage to go out by himself like Simon the Zealot or whether he would have tried to gather all of them together look at our human nature Feel your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were sitting in a room where someone said, He will betray me, and you knew that that meant death to your master, would it not cause sin to enter into your heart and you want to rise up? I think yet again, another element of mercy in this account. And all of that, though may have been an element of sin had they knew, was born out of their love for the Savior. We want to go on, verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. Once again, this is a changing paragraph. It has been foretold that Judas will betray Jesus. The devil entered into him, and that evil spirit left. I think that there was once again a tangible feeling change within the room. I have to wonder, put yourself in a place, and, and I don't want to, to try to humanize Jesus too much, but yet we know that he, was, he had an element of humanity. And put yourself in that position where you are going to a loved one and you are telling them something hard and you don't want to do it, but you know that, that, that
2: you need to do it. And remember the tension in your heart. I think now there was relief in the room.
0: Relief that this thing that had to be done was over.
2: Relief that this evil spirit had walked from this room. And again, there was peace.
0: Jesus launches straight forward here in these verses in as gently way, as a gentle way, as I think is possible. Maybe it was only possible with Jesus to start again to tell him, to tell the, the, the men that he loved, the men that had spent so much time with him, what was to come. And as we continue through this series of messages, we'll see this come over and over again. Yet there still seems to be a void of understanding, and we're not going to go into that now. It has no bearing on today, but
2: what Jesus is saying here, is that I'm going away, and in that experience, it will glorify God, but you can't come. And
0: now we might not choose those words exactly, but we probably would be about that blunt if we had this message to say. But you read the way Jesus said that here. And the understanding that was behind it of how it would be, how it would make those men feel. And so, in his gentleness, we, we, can, we can try to tend to make things efficient sometimes. Though we want to say it once and we want it to be understood and we want to be done with it. Especially when it's hard. But Jesus was willing to do it in a manner where he came time and time again. And he had his whole ministry. This love and this mercy, and there will be more things as we work through these chapters that go into the complexity of Jesus Christ. And maybe in this text they're a little more evident than other times, but these are things that he preached, things that he lived, things that he taught through his whole ministry. You can go clear back to to one of the first things that happened in his ministry, and we mentioned it two weeks ago, where he sat down with Nicodemus. And at that time he said, the Son of Man will be lifted up. His entire time with these men, he had been been trying to forewarn them. And here again, in his mercy for mankind, he expressed this once again with gentleness. Verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye love one another. One to another, Jesus is kind of bringing this message here and and I know that this upper room experiences through through John chapter fourteen but but it's almost as if he's bringing this portion of it to a close, and he circles back to this message that he's been teaching through this entire chapter this message where he's commanding. This agapeo love that they would have one for another and not just for those in the room, but it would extend out from them to all that they ministered to, all that they, they, they lived life with, all that they came into contact with. This agapeo love. I shared a quote with you two weeks ago from John MacArthur, and I think it says it better than I probably could. And I'm going to share it with you again. Your ability to love is directly proportionate to your ability to humble yourself. Love in its purest form is completely unselfish. It is indifferent to personal gain. It has no concern for personal satisfaction or fulfillment. I'll repeat that again. Your ability to love is directly proportionate to your ability to humble yourself. Love in its purest form is completely unselfish. It is indifferent to personal gain. It has no concern for personal satisfaction or fulfillment. Jesus had already very gently broached the topic that it's going to be up to you. You're going to have to go out. And here he has a commandment to go with them, a commandment that will make it Possible, I in no way want this to sound conclusive it was It was probably maybe even too brief of study to to mention, but i 'm going to and I hope that you 'll take this and you 'll look into it on your own to my findings, Jesus only ever gave two commandments any other time Jesus or in the in the, the writings of Paul and all of those that, that come along, anything else that comes up is either reiterating them or referring back to them. And so we have this one, love as I have loved you. And the other one is share the good news. Go preach. And then we have verse 35 that proclaims this is an identifier. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye love one to another. And I don't think that it would be out of line to just replace that with the other commandment. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye share my salvation. I wanted to just give you some references of what this means to the Lord Jesus Christ to keep his commandments. If you turn just one chapter back, and we'll try not to detract from from the next message, but it says in verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. In chapter 15, Verse 12 is much like we read in in, in chapter 13. It says, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. And he goes on to say, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends. If ye do whatsoever I command you. Do you love the Father? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have desire that God the Father would love you? Do you wish to be considered the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do all men know that you are His disciple? Verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither thou goest? Whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. As I studied through this, and I did a little bit of character study on Peter, I think it stood out to me in a way that never had before we 've always known that Peter was bold we 've always known that he was impetuous, but if you follow Peter through the Gospels, his outspokenness many times was borderline on disrespect. The number of times that he questioned the lord's authority, the number of times that he said. Nuh uh, Lord, not this time. Think about the foot washing service. He said, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And here again, it's almost as if the the, the last two verses never happened. And Simon Peter says, He just goes to show how much Simon Peter was emotionally driven in the moment. He got hung up that Jesus was going away, he caught it. I don't know how far it sunk in for Peter, but he caught it. And he questioned him and said, Lord, whither thou goest? And Jesus answered, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me hereafter. And I just marvel many times in Scripture the character of Jesus that comes through in his words. And I think we marvel because we don't have the ability. We give effort, but here again, Jesus is breaking news to them that that he's gone away. And there's so much lesson that we can take to this, to our relationships in life. He's breaking hard news, but he's following on the tails of it with a promise. He's been giving effort to give truth, to speak into these men's lives. And Peter has a question. He missed the boat on the last two verses. But Jesus in His kindness and in His mercy follows this revelation with a promise that states you can't go now, but you will hereafter. Here again, I think Peter was still hung on the fact that he was leaving, and I think that the promise just went right over his head. As we read verse 37 and 38, we see Peter just keep pressing on, and he says, Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. We stated as we went through Simon Peter's character early in the chapter Some evidence in scripture of how emotionally driven Peter was, and I want to go back to some of those verses because I just, I just want to have the understanding that the Lord Jesus knew Peter. And this revelation that he would, would deny him wasn't a condemnation. And we want to talk about that a little bit more later, but if you go to Matthew 16, I didn't write the verse down for this first reference, I'll just read it to you and it says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it's like, wow, Peter has it together. And it's only a few verses later. And I know that there's a, there's a split here in the chapter. This is into another experience. It's not in the same time. But, but in the context of the gospel, I, I, I don't remember how many verses it is, but it's not many. In verse 23, it says, But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Just a few verses later. One, it was upon this rock I will build my church. And then, get thee behind me, Satan. The thing with somebody who is emotionally driven is they tend to be zealous in the moment. Peter got hung up on that that fact that the Lord Jesus was, was leaving and he couldn't let it go. But it wouldn't be long until something else caught his attention and his zealous would his zealousness would swing from this fact that he was focused on onto a new focus and the scripture gives us evidence to where satan himself recognized the tool that jesus had in peter in promoting the gospel if he could get that zealousness if he could get that emotion if he could get that boldness to focus into one area so if you go to luke 22:31 It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And I think that this is referring to the experience that is coming in just a few hours as Peter denied the Lord. Where he goes on and says, And when thou art converted, when thou art directed, strengthen thy brethren. So we gain in the Gospels a picture of a Peter that you might say was carried about with every wind of doctrine. Now I know he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's too harsh to say. But yet every time in the moment, Peter got swept in without thought. But we go to his denial on the cross, and we're not going to talk a lot about that, but you just have I just I just want to bring this in so we have an understanding of of Peter in this moment, in just a few, in just a few pages, from that denial on the cross into the second chapter of Acts, and from there on, Peter is the rock. He is still bold. That boldness never leaves. But he's focused. Acts 2, you're familiar with the Pentecost account. And they're preaching there in Jerusalem. And I think it's, it's not wrong to say that that crowd may have been five to 10,000 people. We don't know the number. That's just a range of guess. We do know that it says 3,000 souls were baptized that day. And in the face of a crowd that not too many days passed, were screaming at the top, top of their lungs, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! These apostles all stand and preach. But it's Peter's boldness that comes out in the 22nd and 23rd verse. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How many times are we afraid to call sin, sin? We want to be friends. We're brethren in Christ. We love one another. We don't always know what's constructive to say and what's not. But Peter, in his boldness, in this newfound power of the Holy Spirit cried out in front of a crowd large enough that if he angered them, it would have cost them all their lives. He said, you crucified him. That boldness never changed. But when Peter repented, he lost the impetuousness. I don't think Peter lost the emotion. Because I think that's what fed his zealousness. And we see that in his heart as we go again into Acts 2, 37 and 38. It says, Now when they heard this, and you see the effect that this boldness had on these people. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I think as we think about this exchange with Peter, though, here in John 13, we again see another example in this passage of God's mercy. As we think about this revelation to Peter, and I'm going to call it that because I think it was a revelation, not an accusation. I think this was Jesus revealing in Peter there was coming a time that would be a defining moment in Peter's life. And he had already stated in chapter 19, bring back to memory, that aid to faith. He's already said, Peter, I know you. I know who I have chosen. And I have to wonder if when he said that, he didn't mean a little bit of different, a little bit different for each one. I know, Judas, that you will not receive the Spirit. I know, Judas, that you will betray me. But I must needs call you because the, the, it's prophesied that one will betray me. And I'm willing to walk through that pain. But for Peter, I think it was different. I think this was yet another thing in, in Jesus' life. And here again I'm probably getting ahead of myself here a little bit. But I think we have two examples in this scripture. We have Judas and we have Peter. And what I want to bring out here this morning is God knows your heart. We can go through this message and we can think well this is an account and the the that was to the to the disciples. This was Some foreknowledge that Jesus shared with them, it pertained to them. Judas was called out, and we can leave it at that. But I think that if we examine ourselves and we're truthful with ourselves, we can identify a little bit with both Judas and Peter. I don't know that they were that far apart at this moment in the upper room. And I have to say that because have you ever found yourself at a precipice? And at that point, you were, taught, you were faced with two decisions. To continue on was to continue in sin. Whether that is in the moment, in the situation, or a life of sin. I think it's applicable to both. Or you have the choice to choose righteousness. To choose mercy in this instance. We're talking about mercy some this morning. And I'm not saying that if you don't, if you, if you make a mistake and you head down that path of sin a little bit, maybe you'll have to back up and come back. Maybe there's a path that'll cut across, but you can still seek repentance. But in this moment, in the upper room, there were two men that were faced with a decision. And for Judas, it's almost like this decision was hanging in a scales on a balance. And he had repentance on this side. And he had temptation on this side. I don't know what Judas experienced in his spirit after the Lord Jesus handed him that sop. But I knew though that Satan entered into him and the balance tipped. I think the difference in this that's applicable to us today under the law of grace is we have an unconverted heart faced with a decision and we have a converted heart faced with a decision. And it's not that both can't make the right decision. But the point here is the decision that was made. The unconverted heart when it made the wrong decision and it came to a point where
2: the need for repentance was identified, Judas felt unworthy of it. I would
0: guess that every one of you that is over the age of 25 have known someone in your life who says, God knows the things I've done and He won't have me anymore. I think that was Judas. But we have to look at Peter and say Peter made the wrong decision too but the difference was as a redeemed person up on that third denial and the cock crew and the difference was that when Simon Peter came to the realization of what had just happened he sought repentance immediately he left that mob even though his lord and master was still in trial because he was ashamed of what he had done, and he went somewhere and he sought repentance, and that was the defining moment in Peter's life. Yes, I don't want to deny the Holy Spirit on on, on this morning in Acts two had a great as great of impact, but this was the moment that brought Simon Peter face to face with the nature of his reality of the two as we think of the message this morning Peter learned to humble himself that he could love better he learned to to humble himself that he could agapeo his fellow fellow man and love better
2: and he he went out and he preached the gospel of salvation where we started this
0: morning in verse 18 The Scripture says it's, I know whom I have chosen. And I cannot say it often enough that God knows your heart this morning. Ephesians 1, starting at the third verse, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. This morning, in this life, we serve a God of great mercy. We have all had mercy extended to us. Today we have looked at an account where mercy was extended to Judas right up to the very point that Satan entered into his heart. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 7, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together with, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might shew the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So I have a few questions that I want to leave you with this morning. Are you a Judas this morning or are you a Simon Peter? As you examine your heart this morning, are you a refuser of mercy or are you a recipient of mercy? The Scriptures tell us that by our fruits they shall know us.
2: As you live life today, this period of life that you're in, are you loving as Christ loved you? Are you preaching the Word? And I feel that in our culture we
0: have associated that preaching to just what I'm doing today. Standing before you. And I want to present to you that that's not what this is talking about in Matthew 20 where He said, go and preach the Word. You don't have to stand and preach.
2: But these two commandments, I think the one feeds the other. If you can humble
0: yourself to the place where you can agapeo your fellow man, And that doesn't matter whether it's within this district, within this brotherhood, across denominational lines, but it takes you out into the world. If you can agapeo your fellow man as Christ agapeo... Loved. We'll just stick with love. Loved you. I think that the fruits of your life will be your message. Yes. When you're asked on account of the hope that lies within you, you need to be able to give an answer wherewith you are called. If you are living this gospel that we hold in our hands, you will be called to speak. Maybe it's just one-on-one.
2: Maybe it's not going out and seeking it. God gives us gifts. But that doesn't mean that the gifts
0: we don't possess, aren't made available by the Holy Spirit in the moment. Maybe it's not your gift to teach. Maybe it's not your gift to preach. Maybe you can't tell the future and prophesy.
2: Maybe you don't feel like you can speak in tongues. But in the moment, if God calls you to a situation that it's necessary the Holy
0: Spirit will provide. And so I want to ask you again this morning, can you trust Him? Can all men, no matter if they know the Lord or not,
2: tell that you are the the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ?